That's not Isaiah 54. The, the Bible reading. That's the PowerPoint. Sorry, sir. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> so, it's, uh, they're funny because you can look at that and they look up and it's all, uh, it's a new skill I'm having to learn. There's so many obvious responses, but I will be wise and uh, read the scriptures. <laughs> uh, right, Lord. So, sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of a desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your curtain, tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will s- spread out to the right and to the left, your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will Forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back. As if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of uh, of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. For my covenant of peace, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the cold into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Isn't that great? 
really, really encouraging. Uh, one of the things I was just reflecting on as I was kind of thinking about this passage is there's a kind of desire within us, uh, I think, within probably within each one of us and indeed in humanity, to know more. I, I know at school that seems an uphill battle uh, for teachers, uh, pupils being resistant. Isn't that true, Jack? Sorry, pick on you unfairly. Um, but there is that desire. Uh, I was, I was uh, kind of aware, uh, if you go to a camera shop, if you're into cameras, not on phones, the old school proper ones, one of the things that they sell to you is the power of the zoom. Uh, James Allen and Jackie's son loves the power of his zoom. He goes to, to Dartmoor and he he's, looks like he's about 10 kilometers away and he zooms in on some great stag across the mountains and it looks like He's up front and close and personal with the stag. But such is the power of the zoom. It's amazing how far you can see. If you're into looking up at the sky at night, I remember uh, being younger and dad bringing out some binoculars and saying, you know, have a look up there. And I kind of looked and it still looked pretty like dots of light. And uh, the moon was slightly bigger, but it wasn't like it was on telly. It's a bit disappointing, isn't it? But there's that a thirst to see further and to see more, whether that's up and out or actually closer and more defined. At university, uh, as I was studying biology, um, it was in the 90s, so I know that dates me quite a lot, but there was, there was the, this kind of whole excitement that the university had gotten a new electron microscope. And uh, on its publicity, you could see they, they kind of scanned the legs of small um, mites and they kind of looked at the cellular structure and it was kind of like really amazing, the detail that could be seen. And even, uh, and now you've, you've had a glimpse of it already and it, no doubt you've seen it in the news, this photograph that is pretty amazing. Cue the, uh, the image, there we go. Thank you very much. Seamless. Uh, this is, uh, bizarrely, a radio photograph. Um, I'm not into physics particularly, uh, but it, I, I was kind of amazed as it, it was kind of trailed the day before. This is the first image of a black hole. You're stunned, aren't you? Well, actually, the black hole is that bit of blackness in the middle, not the edge. Um, <laughs> really technical. Well, there is lots there. It just is behind the event horizon. That it's such a, you know, this sounds like physics, it's such a great gravitational thing that light can't escape. So that black hole is sucking stuff in. Uh, and it was amazing how they discovered this. I was just thinking, we like to see further. It didn't just take one telescope. They kind of got telescopes around the globe, radio telescopes, to focus on this particular part of space, an international collaboration involving 200 scientists and engineers who linked some of the world's most capable radio telescopes in Antarctica and across the planet to effectively see this supermassive black hole in a galaxy creatively named M87. And M87's black hole, this thing, 
has a mass of 6.5 billion times that of our sun, which is in itself one-third of a million times the mass of the Earth. That's the sun. And the event horizon, that black hole, <laughs> that's what it is, has a radius of about 20 billion kilometers, more than three times the distance Pluto is from our sun. That's big, isn't it? A desire to see more, and it's astonishing how far and in what clarity and indeed how microscopically and in such detail. The scriptures are likewise given for us to see more with a greater clarity and a greater depth, a desire to see more, not just in theory, but in the reality of life. Isaiah 54 picks up clearly from Isaiah 53. Sometimes the Old Testament prophets don't work quite like that. Jeremiah flicks around in all sorts of of chronology. When you go from one chapter to the next, it can be a little bit confusing, like a postmodern novel. But in this context, Phil preached on Isaiah 53 a couple of weeks ago. And it's really important that we recognize this is the next step. In Isaiah 53, we had the the song, the next song of the servant, the servant songs. And Isaiah 53 being perhaps one of the most poignant and powerful and dramatic tellings of the Messiah. As Phil referenced this morning, indeed, the, the dilemma, the paradox of the great victory of the Messiah held with, alongside, the suffering, the great suffering. To bring, to bring what? And this is where we see clearly, this is where the scriptures lends for us a greater clarity. It's not because I've got new glasses that I've been thinking of this. You see, Isaiah 53, and always in worship and always in our Christian life, the focus, the draw, the attentions to Jesus. And stemming from that, the outworking, the effect, the consequence, the so what. So we we, we see in in verse 12 of chapter 53, uh, give me the liberty of... of, um, I'm just reading that. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So what? Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You you who were never in labor, Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. The whole chapter is working out the so what, in the light of, because of, in the event of the Messiah and what God accomplishes through the suffering, willing, obedient sacrifice of his servant. And this week, most tellingly, we reread and reflect and marvel again. 
the Messiah. And it picks up, it, I guess, in a really emotive way. I, I was thinking as we were worshipping, we, where we are currently affects how we read a scripture. Oh, it was brought back to me in many ways at college. That we, would, we would often um, be reading scripture and we're taught how, techniques of how to interpret the Bible. And, and so much you have to be aware of who you are and where you are. So the more provocative lecturers would say, well, that's okay for you uh, white middle-class students. What does this mean to someone from a working-class council estate? What does this mean to be heard by 50% of the population for women? It's not saying that who we are determines what the text says, but how we understand the text is often has an influence of who we are. And we were introduced very much to a whole uh, series of of commentaries and and writings from what was then called the third world, but now is called the developing world. To say that we need to break out of our Western mindset and think of what this might mean in the context, not just of, oh, that's nice news for us, but actually this is life-saving, rescuing, brilliant news. I referenced that at the start. And Isaiah picks up most amazingly in the saying, the so what of the Messiah, the so what of the suffering servant, and lands it front and center, both in the imagery of a destroyed city. They knew, or they were going to knew about, know about that. Jerusalem would be destroyed, probably had been by this time, decimated by the Babylonians, racked to ruin. And we know how the walls were rebuilt, but it was still fairly mediocre compared to how it was. It had become a desperate, desolate place. But speaks of the hopeful rebuilding. And indeed, Isaiah 54, as, as we picked up, speaks and, and picks up the theme of a barren woman, childless. Not only is that of, of great emotional impact in this day and age. Some friends have, have been working through and journeying through the highs and lows of, of IVF. Some friends from university and it's a roller coaster. Of years and years of seeking to conceive and failing. Of visiting the doctors and having tests and, and being told that maybe there's a glimmer of hope. And talking on the phone with my friend who'd miscarried. And was told that there was no more help that could be given. And journeying... And talking and seeing from time to time, not all the time, that sense of unfulfillment, barrenness. This isn't theoretical. Isaiah and the Lord touch upon this theme because it is one that we can all relate to in one way or another. We're all children of someone. Surrounded with the joys of of children. We know how challenging an issue it is when Mothering Sunday comes up. And know that it's a day of deep pain for many within the church. 
But the lens of Scripture reminds us that it, it was perhaps even more painful and shameful in the Old Testament. We recorded examples of women who wept deeply and profoundly at childlessness, of Sarah and Rachel and Hannah. And the Lord focuses in on this, not to drive a knife to cause pain, but to point something out. The hopefulness of the gospel. The power of God to resurrect, even when it seems hopeless. But before that, the reminder to understand where we find ourselves. It's important that we understand how we read this text. If we read it as a complacent kind of, oh, okay, it doesn't apply to me. I have children. I'm comfortable. I'm Western. I have insurance and the NHS. It can lead us to be a little bit blasé. But in the place of desperation, in the place of knowing that there is nowhere else to go, the end of the road has come, there is no other solution but God. This resounds most wonderfully as a great, great bell of hope. Sing, barren woman. You who've never bore a child, sing. Burst into song, shout for joy. You who are never in labor. And here comes the promise, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her. Her who has a husband, says the Lord. Just before we enlarge our vision and see something of the application of this, it's just worth reminding ourselves that the greatest hope comes often into the greatest despair. Jesus was asked a question about this in one context. Who's more thankful, the one who's been forgiven little or a lot? Anyone answers? Or is it a trick? It's not a trick question. It's a lie. There's a parable of, of the unmerciful servant forgiven a massive debt and then he's owed a small amount and doesn't forgive. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The challenge, and I'm, I'm not interpreting this verse into, into particularities of childlessness and personal experience. But I want us to recognize, in the context that Isaiah was speaking, to a time when the forces were coming in, bearing down, that they were taking land and, and surrounding Jerusalem and, uh, and stealing, apparently, everything that they'd held onto that represented God, that their life and society and culture were being torn away from them. They came to a place of desperation. It's amazing how need drives us to prayer. Even the atheists, I'm told, might 
disavow their stated belief and cry help in a certain predicament. Entirely right. But I think the challenge for us as a church, church local, church national, is to recognize that perhaps sometimes we need to come to the place of desperation, of, of deep longing, of, uh, of saying, Lord, we are fruitless, we are barren. We need you. One commentator talked about the church as one generation away from extinction. It is. It's a passed on faith. It doesn't happen by accident. That failure to be missional, failure to, to do what we're called to do will mean it doesn't get passed on. There will be empty buildings. I think the passage teaches us to see the further of our need for him. I think the example of, of barrenness of Sarah and of Rachel and of Hannah of weeping. Well, what else can they do? To come to the Lord and weep and cry out to God and say, only you, Lord. Again and again, I've seen in my, in my visits to India when... We, we offer prayer, people come, and, and uh, one of the, the things I learned earlier on, there was a question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And they would make a request, and we pray, and they would sometimes be life and death. Literally. Nowhere else to go. And I'm thankful for the NHS, I am, genuinely but I do sometimes notice that when we offer prayer for healing, knowing, knowing some of the circumstances and knowing, not knowing most of them, there's a real, yeah, I'm not going to ask the Lord, at least in the context of the family of faith. Sure, there's personal prayer. But I just wonder if it just highlights and points out that we haven't come to that place of desolation, of desperateness, of, of saying, where else can we turn but God? Where else? John Knox, a pilgrim, a saint, a brother who lived previous generations, prayed, O oh Lord, give me Scotland or I die. He wasn't a nationalist. Well, perhaps he was. <laughs> I haven't heard it being quoted on banners for the SNP yet. But that, that great cry, Lord, I see the barrenness of my context, of my community, of my nation. And to turn and look to him, the only solution. The challenge of living in our cultural context in the West with its abundance in materialism and consumerism means, I think, that we're less disposed to recognize how poor we are spiritually and how hard it is spiritually. A text like this helps us to recalibrate 
our experience. You've heard of frogs being boiled slowly, haven't you? Frog in hot water, put in hot water, jumps out. Oh, it's hot, burnt little toads, flippers. Frog in cold water, gently heated, will sit there quite merrily until it's dead. I've never done it, so I don't know. You'd be shocked if I said I tried it earlier. No, I'm not going to do that. We live in, in an age that has such a dominant disregard for the gospel. We were talking to the actor last night for Jesus, my boy, and we, we, Phil and I were asking, talking to him about it and said, um, how does it go down you know, when you perform it? And uh, how few people respond? He said, to be honest, the fact that it's got Jesus in the title puts so many people off. So we said, well, take it to America. They'd love it there. That's the climate we live in. Hostility, not just an apathy, hostility to Jesus. The challenge for us in, in, in our context is, is are we content with a little fruit? Or are we keeping turning back to the Lord and saying we need a new miracle? One of the principles I once heard from Spurgeon's doing a talk, he said, he recognizes that it's hard here. It's hard in Britain. He's a very able, Nigel Wright is a very able communicator and theologian. And he said he was reflecting on this once and he, he was just talking about the cultural context and of calling us to trust in the Lord to, for fruitfulness. He was, he was really saying, you know, he, he preached, he, he notices um, you know, he's, he's got to preach lots of times. He, he, he can preach a text in Britain and there's some little bit of response sometimes, particularly when he's talking about a call to faith. Maybe there's just a handful in a very big gathering. And then he was invited to the Caribbean and he, I can't remember the nation in the Caribbean he went to and he, he preached the same sermon in the same way, uh, you know, in the same length of time with the same sort of illustrations and he made an appeal at the end and he said, dozens of people responded. It was like, what's gone on? He said it was almost like I could get up and read the phone directory and they'd come to faith. He said the spiritual atmosphere, the climate was different. I think for us, we have to keep recalibrating ourselves to not be slowly boiled into fruitfulness, fruitlessness. But to recognize our culture means we come back to cry out, Lord, we need you. That we are barren. That our heritage and the great foundations that we've inherited of, of Christian witness and pioneers of social justice and, and health care and education and the legal system, of pioneers who've translated the Bible and set foot in nation upon nation around the world. I'm not rose-tinting that and saying everything they did was great. But there are broken walls. Just as the Israelites experienced, broken down places. And it's not just that we're content with little fruit, 
but want to pray and see in this passage the hopefulness of fruitfulness. Jesus said, didn't he? Here is a trustworthy saying. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. In the language of Isaiah 54, enlarge your tents. Make room for the harvest that is coming in. Make room for what God is going to do, that he is going to call people, hundreds of them, more than biologically could be born. Even more children shall come than you'd imagine. In the language of the New Testament, make bigger nets, build bigger boats, enlarge your tent. The outworking, the consequence of the suffering servant. The power of God exhibited in this week as we remember in suffering and dying and resurrection. He makes the way. I think this passage reminds us to reflect genuinely Maybe there's a bit of fruit, but not to be thinking, well, that's okay. To celebrate that. But to say, Lord, we're not seeing the fulfillment of this, are we? We want to pray, enlarge the tent. Rebuild the broken walls. Bigger vision. The scriptures are really important to read. I've just started reading a biography from time to time. I like to remind myself to read biographies of Christian uh, pioneers. I encourage you to do that. Maybe once in a year, read a biography of, of a Christian who God raised up with a big vision and stepped out in faith. When, when I was a new uh, convert, I, I went to a um, new believer. I joined an action team in a gap year uh, when I was... 21, and it was with the Baptist Missionary Society, and um, lots of people said, what is the Baptist Missionary Society? I didn't know. I'd just been accepted by them. Uh, so I thought I'd better read about them, and it just so happened that it was an anniversary, 200 years of the founding of the BMS, by a guy called William Carey, famous for a strap line, expect great things of God and attempt great things for God. But I read his story from Northamptonshire, a, co- a shoemaker you can go over to the churches there. And he lived in Leicester, actually. He used to, there's a church called Carey Hall in the east of Leicester, almost shut now. But in 1786, age 25, one year as a Baptist minister, he went to a fraternal meeting. That's an old word for a minister's meeting because they were mostly men in those days. They went, he went to a, a fraternal meeting with, with ministers who'd walked for a lot longer in ministry, and he stood up. And he, he spoke on a bigger vision for the United Kingdom churches, not just for its own population, but for the world. He said that the church has become too narrow and too local. What about India? He said he's got at least 25 times the numbers in population. And none of them know Jesus. He sat down and a colleague stood up to rebut him. Young man, sit down, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. An appalling attitude. 
1789, Carey Undiminished published a tract with the snappy title, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. But it was the Lord using it to stir something. He was called uh, to speak at a gathering of people who were sensing this move of the Spirit to look further and greater and the missionary endeavor that had grown a little bit cold. He was uh, quoting from Isaiah in a sermon that he was gathered with like-minded people. And he quoted, Enlarge the place of thy tents and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. God is calling you to a brilliant future. To preach the gospel throughout the world, my friends, you need this wider vision. He wasn't just a pulpit lecturer, but put it into practice. It was inspiring stuff, but it must be noted in celebrating him, there was no note of triumphalism. Often we need to hear chapter 53 with 54, that the way of Christ is one of hardship and suffering in order for the greatness of God to unfold. Carey left for India in 1793 and faced many problems. He got there thinking he might gain some help from those from Britain and the empire who were already there. None was given. He landed in Sarampore in western, eastern India. He took with him his family. Several of his children died of disease and buried there. His wife, suffering from mental illness, eventually died, desperate and alone. And he labored for seven years before he saw anyone respond to the gospel. Seven years. But he was still caught by the vision, and he wouldn't give up. I was reminded, as I thought of that, of Philippians 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorned its shame. He wrote in his diary, if anyone should think it's worth his whole life to write my life, if he give me credit for being a plodder, he will describe me justly. I can plod. I can persevere. Few people know what uh, may be done till they try and persevere in what they have undertaken. Doesn't seem a great epitaph to be called a plodder, does it? I think Isaiah 54, and I'm about to finish, reminds us to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, we need you. It's a reminder to center ourselves, for our vision to be centered upon Jesus. Rather than focusing on the challenges around us, the imperative that is given to the barren woman, sing. Sing. You who never bore a child, not lament, sing. Despite the circumstances, in the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of the pain and, uh, and the, the desolation and the broken walls and the tragedy that you may perceive in your life, sing. 
burst into song, shout for joy. Worship the Lord. He comes first. Trust him. And then take hold of the promise. Enlarge the place of your tent. To take the step of faith. To say the Lord will work. He has promised it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for pioneers of faith. Like Carrie. 